Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. A pleasure to have with us here in our Bloomberg 11302 studio, Stephen Roach. Uh, Stephen Roach, of course, uh, the former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia, former chief economist at Morgan Stanley, now senior lecturer at the Jackson Institute of Global Affairs at the Yale School uh, of Management. Uh, we get this budget today. There'll be talk again of growth expectations here uh, in the U.S. You've been given some thought to uh, the expectations for growth more globally. Uh, can we start domestically and just uh, talk about uh, what we've heard from Mick Mulvaney, the Office of Management and Budget Director? He spoke yesterday saying uh, the days of, of being content with 1.9% growth have to be put uh, behind us. All well and good that he says that. Is there any likelihood of that happening here in the near term in the U.S.? Well, David, there's, a, there's always a likelihood of anything <laughs> happening. But I think um, to push the button and go from um, 2% to 3%, uh, in, in a period where productivity growth is still under pressure, where um, uh, you're not going to get any uplift from uh, growth in uh, the labor force, is going to be very, very difficult to, to, to achieve. So I think any realistic assessment of uh, the budget or the debt trajectory over the next 10 years, which one has to go through to try to make some sense out of this or any other president's budget proposal, is is quite problematic. We'll have a foreign policy expert on and ask him or her uh, what we know about the Trump doctrine, the nascent Trump doctrine. I suppose in the, the the realm of economics, we have Trumponomics, and I wonder if we're any closer to getting a clear definition of, of what that is. Again, Mick Mulvaney spoke yesterday, and he said uh, his definition is uh, principally that it's an effort to get sustained 3% economic growth in this country. Again, a very aspirational goal there, an aspirational definition. Well, do, we do you have a definition of what it is? We yeah. can debate all this. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think we, we have to be analytical in assessing uh, where this budget deficit, how it fits into the mosaic of, of the U.S. economy. And I think there's a real uh, Achilles heel here, and that is that uh, the U.S. right now has an extraordinarily low national savings rate. That's the sum total of uh, personal business and, uh, saving plus the government budget deficits. And uh, when you run a, a low savings rate and you want to grow, you import surplus savings from abroad, you run massive current account and trade deficits to attract the capital. The Trump proposals, in my view, a realistic assessment is they're not going to be balanced. Uh, you're going to get budget deficits. So that will push the national savings rate lower and make the current account deficit wider. And our trade deficits become more problematic in the years ahead. So here's the catch, David, is – that with, with uh, budget deficits uh, and trade deficits likely to expand, Tom will be running these charts on the twin deficits <laughs> once again, uh, you've got a president then who wants to turn protectionist against uh, many of our right. trading partners. How does that add up, Tom? How does it add up 
to, um, well, uh, to, to, to go protectionist at a time when your trade deficits are getting bigger. This is vintage Stephen Roach. <laughs> I, I'm serious, uh, David. This, is, this goes to the heart of what I call balance sheet analysis. Let's stop the show and explain to us that summed savings rate which includes the government deficit, what's it mean for the person listening to Bloomberg's surveillance? It means that the United States is growing beyond its means, Tom. We, we, we teach um, students when they take their very first economics course, and I'm sure you remember this, Tom, um, that the savings must always equal investment. It's an accounting identity. So when we don't save at home, uh, we then borrow savings from abroad, and we run these big uh, current account uh, balance of payments deficits and trade deficits to attract the capital. And so the idea that we can um, uh, now single out our trading partners, whether they're mm-hmm. Germany, Japan, of course, China, uh, or uh, Korea and others, uh, as being villains in what they're doing uh, to uh, punish American middle-class workers misses the most important point is that we need these trade deficits to square uh, the uh, the saving uh, investment identity yeah. in the United States. And, and David, what's so important about this, and, and Dr. Roach's analysis is dead on, is when I mention this in speeches or discussions, often citing Stephen Roach, people are just in disbelief. Mm. They're like, no, that's not true. Disbelief because of my name or because of the but but But, Stephen, this is important. Essentially, every month by accounting identity, somebody's got to write a check. That's it. There's a flow flow here every month. You know, know, I I know I'm a broken record on on this, Tom. Uh, We've gotten away with it because um, uh, we're the world's reserve currency. And, um, you know, a lot of countries, including most recently China— uh, have tied uh, their currencies to the dollar, and so they have to buy a lot of dollar-based assets to maintain uh, that relationship. But, you know, the day is coming, um, uh, and we, we never know when, uh, when the world starts finding other places uh, to um, uh, put its um, uh, savings uh, rather than a low-return uh, U.S. economy, and then it becomes uh, tougher for us to fund uh, are the surplus mm-hmm. savings we borrow on terms that have been extremely attractive yeah. to us for a long, long time. It would be good to speak to someone with experience on going with extended trips with leaders. That would be Michael McKee, who a few years ago uh, used to be on the the White House uh, circuit here. Uh, as well. I I, I look, Michael McKee, at the exhaustion of the trip. Is it real? Is that come with it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the hours are very long. You fly all night, you get to uh, where you're going, the Middle East in this case, and you've got to start functioning immediately. The president has a bed, but nobody else Nobody else has a bed. So (laughs) you're you're jet lagged, you're tired, and the days are long. Uh, David Gurr, I believe we have a headline out. Yeah, a headline crossing the Bloomberg here. Islamic State claiming responsibility for the attack in Manchester last night. That came at the end of a concert by Ariana Grande. We've been following this throughout the morning. We'll bring you updates throughout the morning here on Bloomberg Surveillance. This is according to Sight, uh, and that's a website of professionals who monitor social media chatter, web chatter about uh, right. terrorist groups. Well, we welcome all of you worldwide. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio, coast to coast. So we say good morning to 
Bloomberg 1200 Boston, 99.1 FM in Washington, early morning in San Francisco and the Bay Area, Bloomberg 960. And a special good morning to all of you uh, in Europe and in the United Kingdom as well on London Radio. Michael McKee is here, uh, you know, to talk about the president's trip and off we go to Rome. But much more, Michael McKee, about the budget. You've got detailed notes. What was the thing that stuck out for you? in your note-taking on this political document of the president? Uh, Well, from the perspective I bring to it of an economist, the rosy scenario that the administration assumes, 3% growth from 2020 on, uh, with no credible way of getting there. Uh, Not only that, they assume 3% growth and unemployment goes up. Uh, so much for the Phillips curve. So at this point, uh, it's kind of hard to take seriously. Larry Summers out with an interesting take on it just a few moments ago, uh, noting that they double count the tax savings, the the, the tax cuts they propose will create a lot of growth and at the same time will fill in the budget hole caused by the tax cuts, and uh, he calls that ludicrous. Within this, and Stan Collender writing in Forbes, who's been a good friend of the show, was uh, made very clear this is just simply undoable. In your experience, when you try to quote-unquote make budget cuts in operational government, not entitlements, how much is, is, is a painful cut? How much, somebody asked me this last night, what's to the bone in the <laughs> fiscal world? Is it 2%? Is it the 20% cuts we're talking about? Yeah, you have to take it program by program. Program by program. uh, The way Washington works, normally what you talk about when you talk about a cut is a reduction in the rate of increase. Uh, The government continues to spend more money because the United States continues to get bigger, more and more people involved, and of course the bureaucratic imperative to continually raise their own budgets. Uh, So... If you're talking about actual reductions, that would probably be painful. Then you have to get into the question of whether a program is worthwhile or working, and that's much of the argument from uh, this Office of Management and Budget that uh, a lot of these programs don't work and aren't worth funding. We were talking about assumptions just a moment ago. It strikes me that the director of the OMB, Mick Mulvaney, is making a huge one here when he expects the House version of the Republican health care bill to get through. He's really counting on that uh, for this to work. Absolutely. Uh, The budget assumes $860 billion in Medicaid cuts. Uh, The budget assumes that uh, there will be the rollback of the Obamacare taxes uh, that were imposed on the wealthy. So yes, he's, he, this all assumes both uh, that they will uh, pass the rollback of Obamacare, pass Trump care, if you want to call it that. And cut taxes uh, to the levels that um, that the administration is, has proposed. I want to bring in uh, Congressman Jen Chikowsky. She represents the 9th District uh, in Illinois, Democratic Congressman on the House Budget Excuse Committee. Excuse me, you're not being accurate. <laughs> the Congresswoman represents my mother's high school. There you go. New Trier <laughs> High School, Winnetka, Illinois. That's the correct Specificity is key here on surveillance. Jen Chikowsky joining us on our phone lines. Great to have you with us. You're out with this statement here in advance of the budget release this morning, uh, saying you'll resist this outrageous proposal every step uh, of the way. I-, I-, I assume you're regarding this budget as dead on arrival. Well, I hope it's dead on arrival. I certainly do. I mean, this is a budget of broken promises and then new promises that he can't keep, like these massive tax cuts that go for the 
wealthiest are actually going to create economic growth. We've been there, done that, hasn't hasn't worked. And meantime, it's going to be on the backs of people who uh, need their Social Security and their Medicare and their Medicaid. It's uh, it, it's really remarkable. It's going to, you know, the very people that he promised to uh, to, to help um, and to, to make life better for and make America great for, a great again, are, are the ones that are actually going to be hurt the most. Something that, uh, Director Mulvaney said yesterday in his briefing with reporters is uh, a, a re- real problem here is the efficacy of a lot of these programs. Why should a taxpayer be paying money toward a program that's only, I think he said, 6% effective? Uh, how, how does Congress, how do you and others... Uh, look and, and improve the efficacy of, of programs. I gather you probably don't have a lot of sympathy with the argument that, he, that he's making there. Uh, but how about the broader point here, that, that there are programs that could be working better? Well, first of all, when he talked about, um, uh, about a month ago, about Meals on Wheels, that there's no proof that those programs work, you ask the people, who are waiting in their homes every day. I've delivered those Meals on Wheels to people. Um, Those programs keep people out of nursing homes, which are more expensive. He said that nutrition programs for children at, at, at school, that there's no evidence that they really help to increase learning. Are you kidding me? So, first of all, as a Democrat who believes that government programs work, yes, I want to make sure that they are uh, effective, and I'm willing to look at that evidence. But really, I mean, that, those kinds of, of cuts, and believe me, in Newture Township, where Newture High School is, there are people who are waiting to, for those meals right now. I would suggest, Congresswoman, out of Sullivan High School and with the Illinois uh, blood that you have, that the redrawn 9th District has people that support a Republican ethos, a conservative ethos, even though it is a very liberal uh, district. What permeates the Trump uh, theology, if you will, is we've got to figure out how to get these people back on jobs, particularly with his food stamps. What is the reality you've seen about the SNAP program, the food stamp program, and the idea that we need to get people back on jobs? How do you dovetail that when you're on the opposite side of the debate? Well, first of all, the, about half the people uh, that, that get uh, nutrition assistance through the, the food stamp program, the SNAP program, are children. And so certainly if parents are going to uh, be able to um, have, raise a family and, and have a little bit of help to put food on the table while they're looking for their job or trying to get job training, which, by the way, is also cut in this budget, I think it's pretty hard to explain to them that uh, you know a key element of this budget plan will be huge tax breaks, mostly that go to the the, the wealthiest uh, Americans. Um, you know, as I said, this this kind of idea of trickle down is something that has been tried over and over and over again. And when you cut the estate tax, which goes well, to just a few people, really, I think I think feeding, uh, helping to uh, to make sure that there's well, food on the table. And by the way. Those programs, most people stay on them for a year or less. It's kind of a a bridge over troubled waters. Congresswoman, let's do this. We are out of time today with the horrific news flow we see here, particularly with the tragedy in Manchester, uh, United Kingdom. Congresswoman Schakowsky, we look forward to speaking to you again on the shores of Lake Michigan, the 9th District north of Chicago, and then off to the west as well.
You're seeing the footage here uh, at Eva Gerner Studios of the two Air Force Ones. Uh, that's how many people are on the trip in, uh, I believe, in Tel Aviv. I may be wrong on that. I can't tell where it is, Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, but they're both uh, waiting there to fly the uh, president. David, why don't you bring in the ambassador who has that unique distinction of being ambassador to Israel and Egypt yes, over a set of a decade. Now a lecturer and professor at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University. That's Ambassador Daniel Kurtzer, who joins us on our phone lines. Ambassador Kurtzer, this was a quick trip. Much has been made of that, the brevity of some of these visits the, pres- uh, the president made in Israel uh, today. What did we learn about his attitude toward the Middle East peace process from this visit uh, to Israel, his meeting with uh, President Abbas, Palestinian Authority as well? Well, he he reaffirmed during a speech he just gave a very strong commitment to try to reach peace, indicated that in his conversations with President Abbas and Prime Minister Netanyahu, both of them were ready to reach forward. But uh, he provided uh, very few details of of those discussions, and that may be a good thing. Uh, The the longer he can uh, continue the dialogue in, in quiet rather than uh, try to publicly broadcast uh, different issues, uh, he may be able to make incremental progress. But we really don't know uh, very much about uh, either the president's view of how to make peace or what the two sides told him. What's your sense of how the speech he made in Saudi Arabia over the weekend rang out uh, through Israel, that speech in which he called for Sunni nations largely to to rally together to fight uh, against Iran and to purge themselves of, of terrorist entities within within their populations. How do you think that played in Israel? Well, I think uh, it was music uh, to the Israeli ears because he associated himself and the United States with uh, all of the the same enemies that Israel has identified, Iran, uh, terrorists, uh, countries that support terrorists. And uh, uh, there's really no no distance between uh, the United States and Israel on those issues. What made the speech interesting is that he uh, did it in front of uh, 40 or 50 uh, Arab and Muslim leaders, and uh, in a sense conveyed the idea that we now have a larger group of countries, not just the U.S. and Israel, that are ready to uh, act affirmatively against terrorism. And I think that was the, the key uh, takeaway from that speech. Where do we go from from here? You mentioned that the uh, the speeches that he delivered were largely short on specific. I know the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was asked if there might be a trilateral meeting here with the President of the Palestinian Authority, uh, the Israeli Prime Minister, and the President of the United States in, in the future. He demurred. He didn't answer that question. How do you go from the, the rosy rhetoric we heard from the President to, to action here uh, after, what, several years now of there being very little pro- process on peace? Well, frankly, uh, I'm actually buoyed by the fact that uh, the, the administration did not seek some kind of an immediate takeaway. I mean, there's always this uh, tendency to look for a deliverable. You know, what can what can we announce as some big uh, outcome of the visit? And I think there was a lot of speculation before the visit that the president would want to announce a trilateral meeting mm-hmm. or a summit of some sort involving the Arab states. Uh, and that didn't happen. Now, it's possible it didn't happen because he tried and failed. But it's also possible because he realized that this is a very complicated set of issues, and uh, you can't go for uh, short-term gains. You really have to be in it for the, for the long haul. So I, we'll, we'll see over the next period what the next steps are. He'll probably send out uh, his envoy, uh, Jason Greenblatt. Uh, we now have an ambassador in place in Israel who can move this issue on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and if those next steps indicate a continuation of the dialogue, then I think uh, at least we have some reason to believe uh, that this will go on for a while. 
Ambassador, thank you so much. Daniel Kurtzer with us from the Woodrow Wilson School as well, the former ambassador of the United States to Israel. David, what a morning. The news flow has just been extraordinary. Incredible. Beginning uh, with that uh, terrorist attack we've been covering uh, throughout the morning. That took place uh, last evening. And of course, the president's visit to Israel wrapping up now. He's back at the King David Hotel. He will leave for Rome, I believe, Mm -hmm. in about an hour's a time. He'll head there, have an audience with, with the Pope, and then he presses onward to two major summits, the first being yeah. the, the NATO summit in Brussels and then the G7, G7 summit in Italy. So still a long yeah. way for this president to go before he makes his way back to Washington. And our Kevin Cirilli in Jerusalem touching on the domestic challenges of Washington as well. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. I've been waiting for this interview, David Gura. Sent the moment I heard that Mr. Fields was out. I'll, my opinion doesn't matter on this, but we do have the considered opinion of the Karzar. If you go into Google and type up Karzar, you get the Wikipedia for one S. Ratner, Steve Ratner, uh, of course, appears often uh, with us. He has a wonderful journalist integrity along with his financial knowledge and was selected at one point to save Detroit. You didn't have to save Ford. When you were in the trenches of being a czar, which is a phrase you and I hate. How <laughs> distinctive was Dearborn? How different was Bill Ford, the family and the company? It's something that fascinated me because you had these companies that were essentially identical in every respect in terms of their customers, their footprint, all these things. But yet Ford did not need our help and the others did. And it was simply a question of management. Ford had better management. They anticipated the crisis. They put money in the bank. And of course, famously, for, uh, Bill Ford reached out to Alan Mulally, who, other than owning a car, probably knew nothing more about cars than that, and he turned out to be one of the great CEOs of our generation. Well, talk a bit more about that, the shadow into which Mark Fields stepped, Alan Mulally of, of Boeing Vintage coming to, to Dearborn. What did he do well for Ford? He changed the culture. What what uh, Bill Ford always felt was that Detroit was way too insular, that it was uh, industry people, talking to industry people, playing golf with industry people, and he wanted to shake Ford up, and he wanted an outsider who would bring a fresh perspective and a whole different management approach. And I think you see that courage being uh, demonstrated yet again here, where he's reached out to another non-traditional auto executive and said, this industry is in the bigger in the midst of actually a much bigger transformation than even what we dealt with in 2009. 
And he just wanted to have fresh leadership to do that. You mentioned the, the perceptiveness, anticipating the financial crisis to come. Are we seeing that here as well? Is, is, is Ford making a calculated smart step in your estimation, looking to driverless cars, the self-driving vehicles? It's not. Yes, I think they are. But remember, it's not just driverless cars. There are three things happening that are going to transform this industry. Driverless cars are one. Electrification is a second. But probably the biggest one is ride sharing. The average car is only used 4% of the time. It's most families' second biggest capital asset. The rest of the time it sits in the garage. You're going to see, I think, a dramatic reduction in the number of cars Americans need to buy. And Detroit is going to have to reposition mm-hmm. itself for that reality. Well, can you quantify that from 18 million, 17 million? The run rate is 16 million. Where's Steve Ratner's new 16 million? I honestly don't know, Tom. That's it's fair. It, but yeah, it's a, very fair, it's a very fair question. I think it could be 12. I think it okay. could be 11. It could be something like that. I want to go back, and, and we can do this with Ratner, folks, because he was honors economics at Brown, so it's somebody that actually moved the pencil. One of the great unspokens in corporate America is slick guys versus the grind. And time after time after time, I see companies with an engineering and economics ethos within the C-class officers go to marketing guys, go to the smooth guys, and then they have to reverse. I saw it at Google. Uh, There was a tangential move at Google. Eastman Kodak, I lived it. Is that what we saw here? I mean, within the happy talk of the center from the University of Michigan football team, blah, blah, blah. Is this really about an engineering ethos like Mullally that took a sidestep with Mark Fields and wants to go back to somebody that understands how to code or understands how to read a slide rule? I suspect there's some truth to it. Remember, one of the oddities of this situation is that these guys worked together for 25 years. It's not like uh, Bill Ford met uh, Mark Fields three weeks exactly. ago. Exactly. And so, and it's a little bit like the Disney situation where you had a guy, Tom Staggs, who had worked with Bob Iger for 20 years and then discovered he wasn't CEO material. It's very unusual when that happens. But I do think it is a move away from you call it marketing or whatever, toward a transformational leader. I think more even than engineering economics, I think Bill Ford wanted another right. transformational leader. What did Mary Barra get right? Well, we don't know yet what Mary Barra's gotten right. Mary Barra has done a good job of calming the waters. She's, I think, made some smart moves in getting out of a lot of these marginal She's markets. She's getting out. That's Getting out of the phrase. marginal markets. Getting out is what this is about. Yeah, but, you know, again, when I was doing cars, there was a view that to be a global car maker, you needed to be a global car maker. And now the view has changed. We'll find out if she's right or not, but that's certainly her view. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, this, is, this, this race is going to be defined uh, not by whether you make cars in India or not. It's going to be defined by the three factors that I mentioned earlier. How hard is it to affect cultural change at these uh, companies? They've been around for a long time. They're huge. They have such legacies to them. Uh, obviously, you can make changes when you're under financial pressure to do so, but uh, to, to embark on a, a radical change in culture, how hard it's, is that? It's less hard than you would think. Yeah. And throughout my career, I have been struck by the ability of great leaders to make cultural change in institutions that I thought were impervious. Best, one of the best examples is Lou Gerstner going to IBM uh, when it was in trouble, and he and he affected huge cultural change. Uh, Steve Jobs going back to Apple. I mean, you can go on. The list is fairly long. It, it's not. It's it's not impossible. Uh, when you look at the, the – I want to ask you just about the relationship these companies have had recently with, with the White House. What's that meant in your in your estimation? You've had Mary Barra. You've had Mark Fields going to the White House with great frequency for a time early on in this administration to meet with, with the president. What's the strength of that connection, that, that conduit between the greater Detroit area and Washington right now? Well, Trump is a manufacturing guy, yeah. and he and, and and when you go to Silicon Valley, where I was a couple of weeks ago, they feel a little unloved uh, by this administration. 
Uh, in contrast, if you make something, you feel very loved. From the point of view of the companies, if the president invites you, of course you go because it can't be bad for your business and it may be good for your business. And obviously, the president's very focused on auto jobs and auto plants and where they're built and where they're not built and all this mm -hmm. sort of stuff. So if I were the CEO of an auto company, I would try to stay close to the yeah, White was, House as well. I was in Boston yesterday uh, at this TMT conference that J.P. Morgan arranged there. Excuse me. Steve may not know that Boston <laughs> is a city to the northeast <laughs> with a baseball team one game above 500. You may not know well, that. Well, I, I went to it's school in a suburb of Boston, <laughs> oh, so I do, I do know Good morning, to all of you. Right. Good morning to all of you on Route 146 this morning. <laughs> a point that somebody made there is you, you're looking at who's buying tech companies or investing in tech companies. Now, it's a lot of traditional manufacturers, traditional companies. You talk about the, the, the uneasy relationship perhaps between Washington of today and Silicon Valley. How difficult is it for a traditional company like Ford to marry with or do work with tech companies? How, how difficult is the... Um, the marrying of those two things. It's hard, and some are more successful than others. I think the good news is they're all trying. All the auto companies now have a footprint of some sort. Obviously, GM did that large acquisition. Ford did this kind of joint venture thing with uh, BlackBerry, of all things, which has an operating system. Still they, around, they, yeah. They, they all know that you, they have to do this, uh, but it is hard. It's not in their DNA, mm -hmm. and we'll have to see how it unfolds. Yeah. Steve Rettner, thank you so much. With thank you for advisors, having me, guys. Uh, today, on, mostly on the Ford Motor Company of Dearborn, uh, Michigan. David Gurup, I am of the vintage where I am still in awe of a 747. There are 747s and then there's one, and it is Air Force One. Taxiing at David Ben-Gurion Airport. Behemoth of a plane. Yeah. It is just, there's just... It's generational. I'm sure there's something else to be in awe of, but it is something to see that plane get out there in text. I don't think there's a wait. I don't think. I don't think he's got a another. No time on the tarmac you know, for that. Yeah. You know. I don't know if you know. I've mentioned this on air, folks, but I had a modest wait at Reagan a month ago with our producer Kieran Buchanan and Ritika Gupta. I believe that was a four-hour wait. There you go. <laughs> Surveillance correction coming in here. Michael oh, from uh, Midtown East writing in, uh, noting that I was uh, mistaken when I said that that flight that President Trump took from uh, Saudi Arabia to uh, Jerusalem, flying or Tel Aviv rather, flying that route was a pioneering flight. Glenn Kessler of the Washington Post noting that in 2008, President George W. Bush made a similar direct flight, oh, okay. but in the reverse order going between like uh, Israel landing in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Anyway, thank you to Michael in Midtown East. You know, for we that. value our listeners yeah. who are always wiser than we are. We've learned that. Uh, no, excuse me. Let me not speak for you, David. I've learned that more often than not. What I've learned is that Sven O'Donnell has a unique perspective on the United Kingdom. She is our reporter in Parliament in there's just something I think Svenja being a reporter in Parliament is more romantic than being a reporter on Capitol Hill. What what's it like actually being a reporter in Parliament? Is it as luxurious as I would think? <laughs> I don't know about luxurious. I don't think the carpets have been changed since the early seventies. <laughs> Um, it's certainly, I mean, you're in a beautiful historic building and, and it's a, it's a very strange and quirky institution. Yeah. Um, it, it in a way sort of fulfills every, every cliche you've had about probably sort yeah. of English public schools because it very much feels like being in one. Um, at the same time, you're in the, you know, you're in the corridors of power. Yeah. Um, and you yeah. know, you're, it, it gives you a very, very unique perspective, yeah. but also 
in a way, you've got to be careful not to have a narrow one from that because it mm. is a it is a very closed world. The uh, the unfortunate reality, and we make jokes about Parliament and Svenja's cushy job, but there is terror on the River Thames and there is terror in Manchester. How will the United Kingdom link those two acts of violence? Well, I think the, the Manchester attack is emerging as something quite different. There have been arrests made. The police have made several raids since last night. It's looking less and less like a lone wolf attack. We've had several commentators saying that. I think it, for the UK broadly, it's something that people have been expecting for some time. And compared to France, which, is, which has suf suffered a few attacks in the last year, you know, so far, you know, security services seem to have managed to keep quite a few out in the UK. But the UK has certainly been a, a target for a while. Where are we in terms of the, the investigation? The Prime Minister, again speaking this morning outside 10 Downing Street, said that um, she's confident that uh, the security service knows the identity of the mm. perpetrator of, of this attack. The investigation is, is ongoing. What's your sense of where things are and where they're headed? Well, I think they're going to be very, very careful in releasing any further details because it's looking increasingly like they may have suspected that there were more than sort of one person involved there and then several people at play, whether that was just people who didn't denounce a potential attack or, or some more sinister planning going on. So for security reasons, I think that's probably all we're likely to hear for some time. What's emerging sort of heartbreakingly um, in the last hour is details on some of the victims. The youngest victim is an eight-year-old girl who was at the concert with her family. And it's that kind of detail, unfortunately, that we're likely to get more clarity on as, as the day unfolds. How about the, uh, the identification of, of victims? Are we, are we getting any identifications thus far, or is that something that's being closely held as well? Well, we've only had two mm. uh, victims identified, one an 18-year-old girl and one the, the eight-year-old girl I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, are, are, we, Tom mentioned the, the attack on Parliament just a couple of weeks uh, weeks mm. ago. Is the response to these events uniform? In other words, are we, are we seeing what's happening here mirror what happened after that, um, that event as well? Well, I think there's more of a sense today of police really stepping up to the mark. And, and that sort of tells you that they're treating this a little bit differently. The Westminster attack was horrible, but you know, it was a man in a car. It, it very much looked, it had all the hallmarks of a, of a lone mm -hmm. wolf attack. This is a suicide bomber yeah. that requires a level of planning. They've evacuated a shopping right. centre earlier today. They've made several raids on houses in South <coughs> Manchester. They've arrested someone in connection. So right. this seems to have all the hallmarks of a planned attack. Right. Svenja, I drove by the Thames the other day, and I believe it was the new Scotland Yard building. Tell mm. us about intelligence in the United Kingdom. Identify the MI or this or that and Scotland Yard and how they fit in to the protection of the United Kingdom? Well, what's been interesting is it's had a bit of a checkered history in recent years because there have been cutbacks to security services, to police forces. But in the last couple of years, they've really beefed up sections such as the sort of online data, internet surveillance, where a lot of these uh, terrorist activities are tracked. Of course, you know, these cells are often formed on kind of, you know, special sites. And, and that's one thing that they've really sort of stepped up. I think, however, what, what this incident is really going to highlight is that security is going to be very much part of the dialogue again. And inevitably, the fact that there have been cutbacks in the last 10 years 
is going to become a matter of discussion. Svenja Donald, thank you so much for perspective uh, this morning. She is with Bloomberg News and our Parliament uh, reporter. Let me ask you, Director Woolsey, if I could, just how you reacted to uh, the reports in the Post, in the Times, uh, of the president in that meeting with uh, Sergei Kislyak, the uh, Russian ambassador to the U.S., and the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, evidently, reportedly sharing um, closely held information uh, with them, declaring afterward uh, that that is uh, within his mandate, he's able to do it. How did you, as somebody who's spent a career in the intelligence uh, side of things, uh, react to, to what happened there? Well, uh, the president is the ultimate authority of classified uh, material. And uh, if he says something is classified, uh, unless you want to impeach him, uh, it's classified. So uh, uh, there's no real dispute about it. Uh, In terms of his responsibility, it's clear. And uh, uh, the the president is the ultimate authority on this. And uh, so people who think he has been... Uh, misusing that authority uh, are in a great difficulty because they can't factually cite individual words, documents, sentences, numbers, or whatever. Uh, you can recite something that somebody said, somebody said, somebody said, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, uh, if you can't prove your case, uh, there's really only one answer, which is that it is the president's authority. Now, if you ask hypothetically, would it be a good idea to mm-hmm. share with the uh, Russian establishment at the top, um, and this is a KGB state we're talking about for all practical purposes, um, uh, any information that might lead to uh, their figuring out how we were getting important uh, intelligence, uh, that would be a very bad choice. Uh, but um, people make choices uh, in those jobs for different reasons. Uh, I was uh, faced... Uh, one time with the question uh, whether or not to go to a major media uh, owner and explain to him in terms that he could understand but which also disclosed some extremely sensitive uh, intelligence, uh, whether or not I would do that or just sit there and let them publish without knowing something that could well give away uh, an agent. And I decided to go to the executive you and did. explain to him exactly what was going on. And he said, okay, uh, we, won't, we won't use the number in the story. Uh, thank you. And I said, good. That, that's, that's the way it's supposed to work. Uh, but but uh, you can't really do that with uh, 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 you know, <laughs> a Russian uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, intelligence officer masquerading as a diplomat. Well, if I may interrupt, this is important. The president has a unique relationship with Mr. Putin and with Russia. You, you supported the president. You were part of his campaign, and you abruptly walked away. Does President Trump understand James Woolsey's Russia? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, I'm, uh, I, I didn't really walk away. I just told them I wanted to recognize that I was not advising the transition. <clears throat> I'd advised the campaign, but I, they weren't asking me for advice on the transition. I, I was still out uh, uh, doing press uh, interviews and so forth, but I just didn't want to fly under false colors. Um, I, uh, I think that um, Russia, even though its ideology, uh, Soviet ideology is dead, 
Um, really has historically, uh, except for the reign of the wonderful Alexander II, I wish they had more of him. Uh, Russia is a bit like the old farmer that Abraham Lincoln used to say lived on the farm next to his parents when he was growing up. The old boy used to say, I don't need much land, just what adjoins mine. <laughs> uh, that's kind of Russia. Uh, you know, if, if you got uh, 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 one country, region, or area, then it's a pretty good chance that maybe be a good idea to take the next one. And that they've always been like that. It's, it's, it's not anything particularly related to to their uh, recent communist past. But um, they're, uh, my experience with them in four negotiations, three of them were really, uh, really tough and we made modest progress. One, I headed up the conventional force in Europe negotiations in uh, 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 Vienna. Uh, and uh, uh, right after the Berlin Wall uh, went down, you have never seen such friendly mm -hmm. Russians, let mm -hmm. me tell you. Uh, we were popular guys. Were we, you? Oh, yes. I, I, this uh, is critical. Uh, right. Dexter Filkins wrote yesterday on Jim Mattis, General Mattis mm -hmm. in the New Yorker magazine. David Gurr and I, interview to interview, everyone's saying, what is Secretary Tillerson going to do? What is Secretary Mattis going to do to instruct this president? Do you agree with that, that they're the adults in the room and that they've got to somehow mold and form this unique president? Well, uh, they've got a lot to do because uh, the president has <coughs> a lot of experience negotiating and some experience uh, uh, with uh, Russians, uh, although not a great deal. Um, but that uh, isn't all you need in order to be able to uh, to deal with uh, Russians. And I think that uh, he started out uh, with a somewhat uh, friendlier uh stance mm. than has now evolved over the course of the last several weeks. David, get a question here, please. Let me ask you, just going back to intelligence sharing, I think that, uh, you know, we're looking at the Brexit process play out. Obviously, the, the, that could have grave consequences for how much intelligence is shared with uh, and by the United Kingdom. Uh, we saw what happened uh, reportedly in the Oval Office as well. Certainly, this is going to be something I think that will come up at the NATO summit uh, next week. What's the state of the way that we share uh, intelligence Right now, are we doing it effectively? Is it being done in, in the most effective way? There's not a single uh, uh, approach. Sometimes you're working on something jointly with a country that you're very friendly with, that you've worked with many times in the past, let's say Britain. Sure. Uh, and uh, you actually develop a, an asset or a technique uh, uh, with the two of you making a contribution. Mm -hmm. In those circumstances, even if the United States does most of the collecting of the intelligence, um, you wouldn't be able to operate uh, jointly and effectively for very long if you said to the British, uh, uh, okay, bye-bye, uh, thank you for the help, uh, we'll just sit on this now ourselves. Uh, uh, we don't do that. We, we work uh, uh, closely uh, uh, with, with friends and allies, and sometimes uh, that well, doesn't go well, but lots <clears throat> of the time it does, and it multiplies our, our effectiveness. We'd like you to come back and just as a beginning idea to talk about the state of our Navy. Ah, your tenure of duty there. I, There's uh, a lot to talk about there as there well. There is. Uh, I'm I'm worried about carrier survivability, especially if mm -hmm. it's true that the Russians have this 200 and plus mile uh, per hour uh, torpedo that they've uh, yeah. provided to the Iranians. Uh, that's a 
deadly idea. And particularly within the close confines of the Persian Gulf or mm. just outside it. James Woolsey, thank you so much. He is the 16th director of the Central Intelligence Agency, and uh, we're thrilled to have him in today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.